so let me introduce the speaker today. <laughs> that would be me. Um, I am just pumped to uh, be able to bring the word today. I'm excited about this. The more I got into this, the more I got thrilled to do it. And uh, we're going to have a, as Dave usually has jokes, I do visuals because I'm more of a visual person. So guys, if you can, is it possible to get up those uh, cartoons in the back? Hello? <clears throat> is it coming? Well, I don't have any good jokes, so I can do some bad ones. How many counselors does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but the light bulb has got to want to change. I didn't say I had good jokes. Yeah. There you go. That's the kind of the introduction to our talk today. Oh, here we go. It says, uh, and when you realized it was the wrong tree, why did you think you kept barking up it? What is it about animals in psychiatrist couches? It's just funny. All right, another one? When I, this is a squirrel on a couch. When I learned you, were, uh, you are what you eat, I realized I was nuts. It's funny. This is a great one. I'm right here in the room, and no one even acknowledges me. The proverbial elephant in the room. Yeah, no one even acknowledges me. Actually, I'm fine. I just like to have a place where I'm allowed on the couch. Yeah, one more. Some days I can't bring myself to get out of bed. I just lie around doing nothing all day. The cat says, so? <laughs> yeah, I think that's it. Oh, what, another one? Okay, folks, let's try to keep this civil. And the dog says, oh, man, this is going to be good. <laughs> okay, we're done with that. Well, uh, now that we're, we're jollified, we're, we're, we've laughed ourselves. You know, at Grace, Dave, and others from the pulpit often talk about this idea of identity, identity in Christ. You know, maybe that's a little bit overused. Um, well, maybe not overused, but real familiar. And it kind of goes in, I, I'm not saying, I'm not accusing anybody of letting it go in one ear and out the other, but sometimes I hear, oh, yeah, yeah I agree to that, I check the square. Yes, of course, but does it change my life? So buckle up. I think we're going to get some fresh stuff today. But first, I want to just remember who we are looking at before we look at ourselves. Identity seems to be look in the mirror and interpret what I see. You know, metaphorical mirror and the real mirror. What do I see when I look in that mirror of self? Well, I first have to know that the mirror, the true mirror, not the world's mirror, is God. He is the mighty one, the God of angel armies. After crossing the Red Sea, the children of Israel couldn't hold back their ecstasy. Who is like you, O oh Lord? You know, they just saw the waves open up and transport the entire community of millions across the Red Sea and then fold back into the Egyptian army that was chasing them. And in stunned, awesome st st unbelief almost. 
Who is like you, Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Hear that? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders, holy one of holy ones, the great I am. He is everywhere. That means omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. There is no end to his love, no halting his mercy, no compromise in his holiness. Charles Wesley, we don't sing these old hymns, but I, I came across this one as I was preparing this message, echoes this. And he asked the same kind of question. Who is this God? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who in him to death pursued? For me whom him death pursued. That was me wanting him on a cross. Amazing love, how can it be? that thou, my God, should die for me. Good old Charles Wesley wrote over 6,500 hymns in 17 years. He couldn't contain his joy. He had to write and write and write. And this amazing being, the God of the universe, loves you and me. And folded within that love, his immense love, he calls us to know him. And you know that word know does not mean knowledge. Know like you know, what's the square root of nine and who was George Washington. Those are facts. That's knowledge that we read in a book. But no, this is, this is an intimate knowledge. This is the, the knowledge of friendship or a lover. So in this context, the infinite God who loves us intimately that calls us to know, he says, you can know yourself. We can know ourselves. And that's not selfishness or self-centeredness. God is the one who describes us. He is the one who informs us and teaches us who we are. For without knowing who we are, we can't truly love him and follow him. So we believe in the Bible, and it authoritatively and clearly teaches that we must know who we are, how he has made us, really, to find our way to love God and others well. With that, I'd like to pray. Father, you are awesome. You are awesome. That overword used, it's not an awesome pizza. It's not awesome weather. You drop my jaw. Help us to remember that you are majestic in holiness. You are awesome, God. And guide in this time, Lord God, may the word that we share today, we understand, we share it together today, even though it's coming out of my mouth, it's coming from your heart and from the word of God in Jesus' name. So I don't know who was here when I taught 
a while back on the first level of intimacy, and there's a progression of intimacy. It, it doesn't necessarily come in this order. They overlap, and we're all one at the same time. But God relates to us in many, many different ways. So the first one, if I can throw up that slide there of the uh, potter, it says in Isaiah 64, 8, but now, O Lord, or yet, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are, you are the potter and all the work of your hand. Well, there's a lot of application of that. I'm not going to preach that sermon again, or we'd be here for another two hours. But one thing, one thing I took away from that was I have zero zilch, bupkis, nothing to do with how God formed me. I didn't do that. Uh, what a relief. There was no striving on my part. I didn't send out to make me. There's no such thing as a self-made man. Sure, we have choices, and that forms our life and makes a difference in our life, but here's the cool deal. He knitted us together in our mother's womb. Psalm 139, 13, and 14 says, You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Wow. I didn't have anything to do with that. God ordained my days. He, he, he set that aside. Whoever you are, whoever I am, I had nothing to do with that. Well, yeah, we know that for sure, but doesn't it give us some relief? You know, here's the other thing. He's not done with us yet. He's still molding us. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Oh, he's still doing it. He hasn't given up on us. And he's given us that second, third, fourth, fifth chance to respond to his love. He is the master craftsman. Let me look at Ephesians 2, 8 uh, through 10 real quick. Since I'm still in review. This is out of the Living Bible. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's the gift of God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. The, the, another version says, so no one can boast. You know, we can't get before heaven and go, hey, here I am. I did it. By grace and grace alone. And then it says in verse 10, we don't always see that context, is for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Wow. Really, it's usually translated workmanship, you know. feels like did a really good craft, you know. And when I think of that verse when, it, when it's translated workmanship, um, it's not a masterpiece. I, I feel sometimes like that, you know, that kindergarten thing where you make something out of Play-Doh, 
and you harden it in the oven, and it's mom just raves over it, but it's just a little dorky little whatever it is, <laughs> animal or, or, or a cup or something, and your mom loves it, sees that. That's what I feel like most of the time. But God says the opposite. He says, no, you're not a kindergarten project. You're my masterpiece. Let me, if you put up a couple of those pictures, that'd be great. Cheryl, um, while they're doing that, they're not using that notebook if you want to grab it. It's right there behind the Kleenex box. That's my notes. Yeah, look at this. Is this not a masterpiece? This is not something that you would, you know, you would buy and, and put you know, gravy in. This is a beautiful, beautiful piece of art. There's another one I found. Um, a masterpiece. And that's how God sees us as he's molding us and making us and transforming us. There's one more slide of a, another beautiful piece of pottery there. Yeah, look at that one. I like that one because it looks like creation, doesn't it? The trees, looks like the Garden of Eden almost. Look at the colors. Can you imagine that's what God is making us? Not a pot, but something beautiful, something beyond that we can act. We have to live by faith to see that. Okay, enough of pottery. The next one we talked about, I talked about a few months back, was sheep. So I love this idea that we are the sheep of his pasture. God, the good shepherd, loves his flock. Psalm 100, verse 3, it says, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Then you get all Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. All through the scripture are this illustration of sheep. And there's one really important characteristic of sheep that distinguishes them that I... I I have not been around sheep. Anybody here raised sheep or been? You, know, you should give this part. They, they are compared to cows and goats and other uh, farm animals. They're the most dependent upon people, at least the domesticated variety. I'm sure wild sheep are not that so much so. They just need us. They're very, very needy animals. Um, they're helpless without a shepherd. And, and, and Jesus was talking, he says, he saw the multitude. This is in Matthew 9, 36 to 38. It says, but when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered and like sheep having no shepherd. Now, sheep are so helpless, they, they fall on their back, and they're kind of like a turtle. There's a, there's a slide there of a cast sheep. You know, how a turtle, turtles can usually right themselves, but when a sheep goes down, because they're, they're uh, 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 what's the wool called? They're the thing that, fleets, yes, their fleet is so heavy that they, they tip over and they trip or something like that, and they can't get up. If you ever see a sheep on his back in a pasture, call 911 or 912, whatever the sheep number is, that's a dying sheep. It is going to be killed. So maybe we didn't get the picture of that cast sheep. But in Psalm 42, when you ever come across this, it says, 
Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Now, we think of downcast as someone who's looking like this with their head down, right? Well, this is written by a shepherd thinking about that. He says, why is my soul like a cast sheep upside down? Jesus comes to rescue the cast sheep. Lastly, among hundreds of reasons to understand our sheepiness, one of the most important things is the sheep respond to the shepherd's voice. They don't listen to other people's voices if you give them a command. They hear the shepherd's voice. In John 10, 3 and B and 4, it says, The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Now, the reason I've spent this amount of time reviewing those other talks is, well, so we're progressing through some of our identities that Scripture talks about, how God relates to us and who we are as we relate to him. God is a multifaceted God. Now, if you note in your notes that you got from outside, I misspelled faceted. Just want to say, I saw, I caught it, but it was too late after I printed it. I know how to spell. Well, at least spell check helps me know how to spell. God is a multifaceted God. He cannot be easily described. I looked this up. How many names does God have in the scriptures? I want to elaborate on them all here because Google tells me 967 different names of God. Almost a 1,000 names. Because of his awesomeness, he cannot be described by one or three or a dozen. It's 967. Blew me away. So today, now that I'm getting past the introduction, the way God relates to us is servant. Not the only way he relates to us. A servant who serves out of their identity as a beloved son or daughter. So let me talk about Jesus' mission statement to kind of introduce that. Every organization has a mission statement, right? Grace has one. Releasing heaven's realities through Jesus Christ by loving God and loving people. That's describing, it's a motto, it's a saying, but it's, it's describing a mission statement. So mission statements help us focus on the goal. So what is it that we're doing? Where are we going? What are we, what are we trying to accomplish? It has to be concise and to the point and also descriptive enough to make the goal clear. So Jesus has a couple couple mission statements, probably more in different translations. One is a wonderful story in Luke uh, chapter 4, where he quotes Isaiah 61. He goes in, this is, <laughs> I love this story. I, I talk to people about this all the time. Jesus is baptized in chapter 3. He is taken into the wilderness in chapter 4, 
where he defeats Satan, where Satan has to go away for, a long, for the rest of his ministry while well, he's, he's present in many different situations. And then he goes into a synagogue. They hand him the Isaiah scroll because he's a traveling teacher. And he reads this out of Isaiah 61. In case you didn't know, there were no numbers back then. I don't know how he found the passage, but he found it. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Listen, he's saying, good news, I come to bind up. I came to heal the brokenhearted. And that word in the Hebrews is uh, Jeb Sabar. I think I, I'm, I'm messing it up. Shabar, which means shattered. It's not like I broke that pottery and put it three pieces broken. I got super glue out and fixed it. It's dust. I come to bind up the brokenhearted. That's Jesus' mission statement. Notice it isn't, I come to condemn you and make you feel guilty because you're not doing enough. That wasn't it. Nope. Your broken heart, I come to mend it. I'm going to preach more on that someday, Lord willing. There's so much there. Let's look at another mission purpose statement. And that is a long one out of Isaiah. I'm going to read the whole thing. And we've got another two hours, right? No problem? Okay, we've got a half an hour. We can do it. No one, no one applauded when I said two hours. I don't understand. Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 53, 12. This, I'm, I'm abbreviating some of it, but... See... My servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. He has no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God and stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep... There's that sheep reference, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord make his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, 
he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You just heard a sermon out of Isaiah. All by itself. We can go home now. That describes Jesus' ministry to a T. 700 years before Jesus was born in a manger. Kind of proves the Bible is true, doesn't it? How can that be that accurate to the T? 700 years after it was written in Jesus' life. What a beautiful summary. You could spend weeks on this one passage. It's prophetic nature, which means God is outside of time itself. It's amazing accuracy of Jesus' life and its hopefulness, blessed hope of salvation. If this was the only passage we knew in the Bible, it would certainly carry us well, fulfilled every time. So let's look at another one of Jesus' mission statements. Mark 10, 45. It says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Hear the echo of the Isaiah passage there? Suffering servant. Righteous servant in Isaiah. Humble. He came riding on a donkey. That was prophesied. On Palm Sunday to fulfill yet another prophecy. But, you, you know, the expectation of the Jewish people was what? What, did they, what were they looking forward to in the Messiah? All through the centuries, they were waiting for the oppression from all the... There were several different oppressors. The, the Greeks before the Romans and the Romans were... Uh, more and more and more oppression. Eventually, they totally destroyed the temple, but they wanted a conqueror. They wanted David reincarnated on a white steed. Wasn't that their history? Wasn't that the pattern of God, God, what God did before? Caution. God doesn't follow a pattern. He likes to keep us on our toes. But the Jewish people, like we read in Luke, were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Remember? They wanted conquering kings to once more avenge their suffering. But God came instead as a good shepherd and a servant. Of course, we have the gospel. On the night of his betrayal, Jesus did the extraordinary. Remember this story? Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Now he calls us to do the same. John 13, 14, 15 says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Foot washing. 
Not something we do. Did you know that some denominations today make foot washing as a sacramental ritual right up there with the Lord's table or communion? Ever hear that? Not a bad idea. I don't know. Maybe we should try it sometime. But let's think about the implications of foot washing. People then walked around in sandals, of course, and they weren't a lot of paved roads. There were some Roman paved roads, but they were basically the interstate highway of the day. And you know, if you got a full day of farming or just walking around, the most important thing you could do when you get home is wash your feet. So in a household that had servants, the task was relegated to the most humble, the lowest of the low, the bottom of the proverbial totem pole. So it's no surprise, I'm paraphrasing here, and Jesus Peter protested, I won't let you do it, Jesus. And Jesus coyly said, okay, if you don't let me do it, you'll have no part in me. That's a Raleigh translation there. Almost hilariously, Peter said, whoa, Jesus, okay, wash all of me. He just couldn't get into his head that Jesus would wash feet like the lowest of the lowest servant in any household. Point being, I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you, it says in that passage. So, you know the old soap process, scripture, observation, application, prayer? I'm on the A part now. What should we do in light of this passage? Well, let me think. Maybe I should look at others in a fresh light. Maybe instead of using someone for for my own purposes, maybe I should look to see how I can make their burden a little bit lighter. Maybe I can ask the question, how can I pitch in when no one is looking or take out and take out the garbage? Maybe just think of myself as one who loves to see others succeed as much or more as I want to succeed, as I do. We might ask the question, and maybe a prayer, it says, uh, Jesus, Father, Holy Spirit, how can I lighten the load of someone that comes in my path today? And since I'm a masterpiece, let me shine this little light of mine. How can I carry a burden in this pot for someone who can't carry their own? Little children can learn this, and so can we. I'm, I'm getting up there in age. This is my birthday today. Did you know that? I'm 107. I know it's hard to believe. I'm not 107. I'm lying. And I'm trying to live out the idea that there's no task. I'm still trying to figure this one out, in other words. That's too low for me. Oh, so much we could meditate on here. Perhaps more later. I'd like to look at another passage in Philippians chapter 2. It's amazing. Uh, I, I am flummoxed with Philippians. Uh, it's a little, little letter that just grabs my heart. I'll tell you why here in a minute. So let's read that. Therefore, if you have any encouragement 
from being in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, whatever rank you are. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That was a hymn that was written before Paul wrote this letter. It was an early, early church hymn or poem that he quoted. Now, he might have written it, but he was referring back to it. This is a familiar passage that told all about Christ. Just like that Isaiah passage preached the gospel 700 years before Christ, this one also put into one passage the entire work of Christ in the context of a servant. Now, let me give you a little bit of background on, on Philippians. You may know this, Bible scholars, but Philippians was written towards the end of Paul's life, and it's bursting with joy in the midst of severe suffering. This is one of Paul's final letters. He, was under, he used to be under house arrest in Rome, but now he was not in house arrest. He was in chains for Christ, it says in Philippians, waiting for his execution. The story is that he was chained to a guard in four-hour shifts in a stinking sewer of a dungeon underneath the palace where Nero was the emperor. Very little light, no earthly comforts, and yet, as I said, Philippians is bursting with joy. It says, I'm excited because I'm in chains for Christ. And it goes on and says, because I'm in chains for Christ, the whole palace guard now knows that I am and he's exalted. Do you understand that, that there's a guard that he's chained to every four hours and they, they, they cycle out of there because they can't stand the stink, I guess? And they tell everybody, this guy, he's... He's in a really bad place, but he's ecstatic with joy. Now, my, my dad had a, Paul isn't saying, hey, cheer up, put on a happy face like me. No, no, he, he just had a higher purpose. He saw what his suffering was doing for the glory of God. In the lowest end of his life, in the end of a foul-smelling dungeon, he exuded joy. Not, not just happiness, that depends on, Happiness depends on happenings, right? If things I want to have or people treat me the right way I want, then I'll be happy, right? Yep. Paul says, 
Paul says, you want to find true joy? It's in relationship with the living God. In chapter 4, Paul says he's learned a, a secret. He says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance, whether living in plenty or in want. Like, when I got stuff and when I got nothing. Well, partly because of this passage that comes before chapter 4. Yeah, this passage that we just read in Philippians 2. Your attitude, no, rather your thinking, I can be like Jesus. I can think like Jesus. Because he says, in any situation I'm in, I can lift the burden of someone else. I can be the lowest servant. on the, I can take the lowest spot at the table. Remember that in the Gospels? Why? Because that's the way he thinks. I can think like him. Uh, somewhere it says we have the mind of Christ, right? In the mind of Christ, he sees himself, and he calls us to do the same to serve. Oh, there's so much more I could go on about that. But it reveals Jesus' inmost motives. And, and I emphasize that word mind. As Paul says, be like Jesus. And here's how. Really, a lot of times that's translated, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. But really, it's your thinking should be the same as Christ Jesus. Now I'd like to kind of change that subject a little bit. I have come across people that think that God only loves us when we serve. If I want to have a relationship with God, then serve God. Serve people, and that, that will draw me close to God. Well, that's not all untrue. I think if we're sitting on our posterior and do nothing and not lift a finger to serve others, then there's something wrong in our relationship with God. But sometimes we think, in other words, if I learn to serve others, then I'm okay. I'm in with God if I serve. And I've talked to some folks who feel that the way they can be close to God is to serve people. Not all wrong. I think as we sacrifice our money, time, and energy in serving others, then Yes, I'm in. After all, Jesus said, if you do this to the least of these, you too, it is also in me. You'll, in other words, if you serve the least of these, you'll be serving me. Hear me well. God calls us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. And that means thinking like Jesus and loving like Jesus. No disagreement there. However, we need to check our motives at the door. I really appreciate Pastor Tim Keller, who passed away um, earlier this year. He is a pastor in New York City, and he reached out to New Yorkers. Now, that's a mission field. Right, Jim? He says, it's extremely seductive and a very, very strong temptation to move out into other people's lives more to meet your needs than to meet theirs. You get involved, you serve, you listen, you counsel, you help, you love, and you say, but that could be using them and not loving them. If you go out to meet your own needs first, that is. 
If I'm meeting others' needs to feel good about myself, then I've missed something. Uh, how can I tell if I'm doing that? What's the, what are the signs? Do you find when those people are trying to love and meet their needs, what if they don't respond? What if they're not grateful? What if they don't act the way you want them to act after you serve them? I'm in the application phrase. I'm in the A again. Are you the kind of person who is continually getting hurt feelings? Are you the person, kind of person who continually feels snubbed? Are you the kind of person who continually needs to control the people you're with to get them to do and act just the way you want them to? Tim Keller again. That's Tim's words. If you answered yes to any of those, looks like you've moved out of their lives more to meet your needs than to meet their needs. And it's going to be nothing but destructiveness in the relationship. In the end, they're going to feel very empty, and you're going to feel empty too. And you're going to blame each other. And you're right, both of you. What can you do? Ah, Tim says in his sermon, have the same mind that's in Christ Jesus. One of the things he talked about in that sermon, I don't have it in my notes, Cheryl, but I'm taking a little side is that I'm a Trinitarian. God didn't make people because he was lonely and he needed fellowship, right? He was in perfect fellowship with all of the members of the Trinity, something I can't explain, but I take by faith because the Scripture teaches it, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in complete union, fellowship, and joy for eternity past. And then he decides, I want to invite others into this great fellowship. Someone said, we were born out of the laughter of the Trinity. So, Jesus Christ was in the Trinity before he was out of it. He was never really out of it, but before he became a man and started ministering to others, he was in that bond of the Trinity. That, was, that is, he was in perfect relationship of love, joy, and acceptance from all eternity. So, we have to be. A Christian is somebody who goes into the Trinity before we go out. I know we're human beings, and therefore there is fulfillment, fulfillment of our needs as we meet others' needs. It's, we're human. We're not the Trinity. But primarily, I have to ask God, is this loving Heavenly Father? Does the Father love me in Christ? Does he accept me? Is there now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Do I really belong to him? That has got to be settled. And the bottom line of your worth and your significance in your life has got to be settled before you move out. You've got to do what Jesus Christ did, or you're going to find yourself going out and not giving love to get love. So let's go back. Amazing. I'm almost done. Don't you hate it when pastors say that and they go on for another 20 minutes? I'm not going to do that. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, again. That was what we started with at the beginning. 
God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he has planned for us long ago. Bottom line there is love and grace must come before service or service becomes our idol, our false god. May we go out, a couple thoughts. God, how can I lift a burden today for others? And Jesus, thank you that I'm inviting you to go with me. Um, a little, Sarah, did you want to do a song? Just, I don't, I don't want to add any more to what I've already said, except this is how I explain it when I'm counseling people. Serving God means first of, know, first of all knowing that you're loving God. So I don't go out to please God. I go out with God. It's like this. Hey, Raleigh, Jim, John Lou, Sarah, I'm crazy mad in love with you. Do you know that? Can you look in the mirror and go, wow, I'm a masterpiece? And then he puts his arm around us and says, you know, there's some hurting people over there. You want to go together, fellowship with me, knowing you're, you're loving them out of your belovedness? Yeah, let's do it. That's service. That's being a servant, like Christ said. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many.
for this day, for what you have for us as we go and serve you. Uh, prayer teams like to come up and, and uh, avail yourself for those that need prayer. The benediction. That's the amen of the service, right? Jude 1, 24, 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Have a great day, saints.